Welcome back to another episode of Whose Filmography Is It Anyway, where today we don't get into the Star Wars movies as promised. Instead, we're going to talk about the creator, Georgie Boy himself, George Lucas. Don't worry, this George didn't fall down into a sewer in the 1950s. He is very much alive and observing everything, apparently, because American graffiti is all about the 50s. Anyway, with me, as always, is my co-host and friend, Josh Page. Thank you, Stephen, for another uh, lovely introduction, as always. That's a little yes. bit of a ramble, but it's okay. Hey, it's okay. You know, it's, uh, yes. Um, yeah, we're going to get to Georgie Boy today. We're going to talk about Georgie. 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 Can I, what's interesting about George Lucas, just off the onset, he has only directed six movies total. Six. That's it. Uh, THX. Yep. American, American Graffiti, Graffiti. Star Wars. A New Hope, Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, Revenge of the Sith. Wow. That's it. And in six movies, he walked away a billionaire. <laughs> so it's really probably one of the most profitable filmmakers of all time. Not just that, but like for such a short list of uh, movies, it's astounding how much he has influenced all of Hollywood. Because yeah. Make no mistake, this man has changed Hollywood several times over. You know, for better or worse, you can argue, but he has changed it several times over. It, it's funny because people give uh, James Cameron the kind of that he's kind of earned that that rep for better or worse that he's influenced a lot of Hollywood for doing so little. Because James Cameron, he did a decent amount, but like it's not, and it's less, it's more than George, but like you know, over the years, it's like, he's been sitting on Avatar sequels and it's this whole idea of like, what's he really doing? Yet George is really the one who started that trend of well, like- James Cameron will tell you that the reason he got into filmmaking to begin with was Star Wars. Yeah. He fell in love with it. And he, I think he was a sci- like going to school for uh, science or something. I think he was supposed to be a biochemist mm-hmm. and he saw Star Wars and decided, I want to go into the film industry. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, if I remember correctly, no, I mean, I mean, and part of what Star Wars, um, part of one, one of Star Wars' greatest achievements is how big of an influence it is on so many people, and so it's just, I mean, and that all, you know, the fact that it all came from, you know, one man's from, mind from just one from old old George Lucas, you know. Well, we can't give him all the credit. Let's be real. I it, we'll we'll get to this when we get to a new hope, but he cherry picked a lot from uh, other movies and. Uh, oh yeah fairy tales and lore and don't get me wrong i'm not denigrating what he built what he built is astounding but right he did use a lot of stuff as long of course and i he he he, there was a lot of influence that he had but what he did is he just he did what a lot of filmmakers do today where they just take elements that work 
or that have worked for the past and they recycle them for a new generation. He made it easily digestible for just a wide audience of people to take in, you know. Um, uh, so, but, yeah, to quote one of the characters he wrote, he think he's so smarty. <laughs> oh, God. But, big uh, brain. So let's, uh, let's take this opportunity to dive into George himself, how he got started, and I'll let you take away with your notes. I'll chime in with uh, whatever I so have So let's here. get into a short little bio of him. He was born May 14th, 1944. So I guess everything good in his life has ever happened in a May. So he must look forward to May in general. His birthday, Star Wars came out in May. I think all three of the I actually might be all six of the original came out in May, but May seems like a big month for him. He was born and raised in Modesto, California. His father was a stationery store owner, which good for him, I guess. But let's move forward a lot here. He was very passionate about cars. Cars were like his life for a little bit of time. He actually wanted to be a race car driver until he got into like for a profession, he wanted to be a race car driver. He would drag race, which we'll touch on when we get to American Graffiti. But he got into a really bad car accident that nearly killed him in, you guessed it, May of 1962. And after that, he was he said, you know what, maybe racing is not the thing for me. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it's he was so good at cars and mechanics that he brags even to this day, that if he hears a car engine for two seconds, he can tell you what's wrong with it. Which oh, absolutely. It's really cool. I mean, I'm not much of a car guy, but hey, I'm a Manhattanite. I don't need a car. Get off my back. Anyway, <laughs> he tried joining the army during the Vietnam era, but was rejected because he had too many speeding tickets, which is <laughs> pretty funny. But it's just fascinating his early life here because he nearly died he wanted to be a race car driver and he almost joined the army and going to vietnam that's like three situations where he easily could have been pulled out of the film world mm -hmm. well it's, yeah it's very interesting to see you know in this in this life how we have opportunities to do different things and then life kind of just points you in certain directions and that he ended up where he ended up, you know, I mean, between like, you're, like you're alluding to like race of being a, a race car driver or being in the military. And it's like, yeah, ultimately, well, it, it's just interesting because it looks like it was not his first goal, but he was arguably the most successful, like monetarily of his generation. Sure. Uh, you know, I guess Spielberg and him are up in the air, but, you know, schooling, he went to USC. Uh, University of Southern California and for well he went to junior college originally but then transferred to USC for uh, film in 1967 he made a number of student films but in 1967 he had his first hit with electronic labyrinth THX 11384EB which won the first prize at the student film festival which is where he met Francis Ford Coppola the man who changed his life. We'll get into him a little later when we talk about THX because there's a lot to talk about, but mm. he at the 1967 era, that's the dawn of the new Hollywood, the American new wave, Hollywood Renaissance, whatever you want to call it. There are a bunch of mm. them. 
there are a bunch of names. In 1967, it was launched with Bonnie and Clyde because it was a new style, not just of filming, but editing and the way mm -hmm. film got more graphic. It was the entering, it was the leaving behind of the old Hollywood system and entering this new era of grit and dirt and everything you associate with 70s filmmaking. Um, what I, when I was doing research on, it was really with THX, but it was this era is what it was, is we were coming out of like grandiose, like Hollywood spectacle filmmaking, because like the fifties were like these giant, like wide scope, like big budget kind of movies. So that was like the first time cinema had really exploded. And then what happened is, is I guess in the late, in the sixties was a very experimental time where they were taking what we would now identify as like the indie age and basically taking like very low budget, like very artsy independent films. And what they were doing is they were even either being handed over to bigger studios to put out, or they were, you know, uh, being released on their own accord and then not being recognized till, you know, sometimes years later. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting because you never really saw that kind of experimental filmmaking the way you did uh, that we first saw in the sixties. The best way I can point to the change in Hollywood is in 1968 or for 1968 it technically won in 1969 but the oscar went to oliver the year after it went to midnight cowboy right you see the dichotomy there oh yeah one is a g-rated movie the other is an x-rated movie that is the jump <laughs> in hollywood yeah. right there it's kind of like what are we doing with this whole idea of of movies and how do we award them and where are they going and it's yeah, kind exactly. of like there were really no limits at this time it was kind of just it was everything was fair game so george Lu as i was saying george lucas went to usc but the new film the american new wave was founded with a lot of directors who ultimately became friends because some of them went to school together. George went to school with William Friedkin and De Palma. On the other side of the Atlantic, of the, sorry, the other side of the country was Martin Scorsese. Uh, and Spielberg was in California too. He, he didn't go to film school, but he was in the Los Angeles area. All, all these people were like friends. And the person on top of this hierarchy was Francis Ford Coppola, who they called the Papa, because he was slightly older than all of them by like a couple years, but he was down on their level trying to like build new art with them. Right. And so, they, uh, I don't know if they had founded their production company, American, Zot uh, American Zotro. Zotro. I don't know if that was Zotro, at this, but, uh, I don't know if that was at we'll this time. That. Oh, okay. We'll uh, so now that we're talking more about Coppola, let's get into THX because he has a lot to do with it. Uh, in 1969, Easy Rider comes out and the possibility of new filmmaking Hollywood seemed possible. Not just like, like I said, the style in which film was made completely changed. Easy Rider was not made in Hollywood. It was made around the country. So Coppola wanted to take that model and make a movie, The Rainmaker. He wanted to not be in Hollywood. He wanted to film around the country. And he offered George Lucas a second, no, like, you will be no my number two on this job. So George Lucas quit school to join in on Francis Ford Coppola's thing. He didn't get a lot of pay, but what he got was the ability he got uh, Francis Ford Coppola's everlasting <laughs> devotion, one, and two, 
Francis Ford Coppola said that he will help push through whatever script George wants next. Yeah, that's so cool. George was like huge on this American Rainmaker, this Rainmaker situation, and uh, he started forming. George started forming his new like idea of what a movie he should make. And he landed back on THX 1138, which, like I said, was his student film. But he wanted to make it a long, you know, a feature film. Coppola told him that he needs to write a script. He said, you'll never be a great filmmaker unless you can write a script. George Lucas said, yeah, I, I, I can't write a script. Coppola pushed him to do it anyway. He hands yeah. Coppola the first draft and he hands it back saying, you're right, you can't write. <laughs> <laughs> they they when i was uh researching this it was just they had said that this this script went through many drafts yeah they brought they had to bring back the original writer of the short film walter merch that was one of his classmates right or that was one of his schoolmates that he, who yeah, he, that was one of his uh he, he was wrote, he wrote the original idea and they like and george helped them with it and then they gave him i guess from my understanding they gave him permission to kind of like take it and do what he wanted with it with the material yeah exactly uh so George and Coppola, while making uh, Rain People, not Rainmaker, that was my bad, while making Rain People decide to find a new home outside of Hollywood and land on San Francisco because it has everything that they want and it's close enough to Hollywood where like if you need, like even though they wanted to pull away from Hollywood, you still need their blessing it's you know like a godfather situation where you need the big don's permission to do anything so you need to be close enough but not far enough which is ironic that they wanted to shoot the film in japan (laughs) well yeah we'll get to that in a minute um yeah you still have to be close enough to kiss the ring but america but uh, george and coppola start american zootrope and coppola gets funding by talking to hollywood executives saying that he has seven scripts ready to go he gets an agreement from Warner Brothers to make THX. And after they screened it the first time, they wanted their money back. <laughs> um, George, so let's talk about the movie itself now. The idea for this film came from George Lucas's love of comic books, which isn't much of a shock, although I guess comic books in the early 50s would be a lot less uh, intense. George said that it was a modern story with an alien veneer. So the, the even Walter Murch, the writer, said that this is like not real. Like this is how society operates, THX. Like we just, it's just like a fancier way of telling what is actually happening in this time period. Because this is the 70s. This is like the Nixon era when people thought that they had it worse than... <laughs> When people thought the government was as bad as it could get, uh, they con- like you said, they contemplated making this film in Japan. George even went to Japan. Yeah. The problem was that, well, he even got permission from a couple power plants to do it. But the problem ended up being that they didn't have enough money to do it. I was going to say, I know that this idea of, I think because yeah, Japanese, the, the Japanese have always been big on just marketing. They've always been big on pushing, you know, co- commercial and, and products and, and whatever. It's like, buy, you know, everything that we have that's great, you know, that you can 
that you can buy a lot of it, you know, stem from Japan. So apparently he went there and was like, oh no, this is way more expensive than I thought it would be. Yeah. And the budget for this was only $777,000, which is mind boggling in of itself because this is like a big movie. Yeah. The movie was shot. Oh, well, before I get to that, (laughs) George said the hardest part about getting actors for this movie was obviously the fact that they had to shave their heads. Uh, He auditioned a lot of people and a lot of women he liked turned him down because they didn't want to shave their head ultimately they found maggie mcomi who Mm. there's actually like they filmed all the actors getting their hair their head shaves and they did her haircut under in san francisco like rights by the there's this like arch in it it only i think they actually use it in star wars it like there's this arch from a why am I blanking? At the World's Fair in 1915. It's really nice, but they're filming her getting her hair shaved at that place. And she's like crying. It's like, this shouldn't be like, you shouldn't be showing this to anyone. It's, it's very like, strange. Yeah. I, I mean, I know it was a, a you know, different time. I guess people were uh, overall a little more sensitive about certain things. Um, George said about them shaving their head, I felt bad watching them do it. But I got over, but I got over it quicker than they did. <laughs> I love that. That's very George. I, it's funny that you say that about the shaving uh, the heads because I'm sure you have this note. But it's that um, to provide the large number of extras, uh, Lucas contracted uh, a drug rehabilitation facility, finding many recovering drug users who were required to be shaved bald for the drug program anyway. Um, and I guess the the facility you know, is mentioned in. Um, Philip K. Dick's science fiction novel, uh, Valis, or uh, anyway, but I, I found it interesting, especially the scene where they open the door and there's all that whole traffic jam of all the all the bald heads. Yeah, what's funny is that traffic jam where the same extras walking back and forth, they only had like 20 people because again, it's a small independent movie. So they mm-hmm. literally had those people walking in a circle. That's so cool. And like continuously pushing them, yeah. which is, I think- yeah, because each extra only got paid thirty dollars a day. It's wild. They were it was a thirty-five day shoot. Yeah, and supposedly they filmed it like a student film. Mm-hmm. They tried to shoot as much as they could in San Francisco. Uh, the Alameda Tunnel is shown. That's where the chase takes place. Yeah, they said that the chase was actually pretty crazy. Uh, that motorcyclist got up to one hundred forty miles per hour. Oh my God. And this was before, like, you could really do effects or, like, dummy work. So the person who had to jump, like, do that jump on the motorcycle, like, the jump and fall, he actually had to do it. He's going, like, 100 miles an hour, and he actually had to do it. And George told the actor, when you land, don't move, because it has to look like you're broken. So it'll ruin the shot if you move. So the motorcycle went higher than anticipated and the stunt actor went flying. The motorcycle even went crashed into him afterward. And before like cut could even be called, everyone runs over to that, to that guy. Cause they're like, there's no way that this guy could fucking survive this fall. Like Francis Ford Coppola is <laughs> panicking because he's afraid of the lawsuit that's about to unfold. They run over. He's not moving. Mm-hmm they tap his shoulder and take off his mask. He, and the actor looks up and goes, 
why did you ruin my shot? <laughs> so the stuntman is named Duffy Hamilton. Yep. And yeah, there's a whole note about that, how like, you know, everyone at location was stunned and immediately ran to see if he was all right. And according to Lucas, it turned out he was perfectly fine, apart from being angry with the people who ran in to check on him. So it's really funny yeah, that- He was pissed because he's like, you ruined my <laughs> shot. Now I have to do this again. Uh, the white, the whole white sequences, like where there's no real scenery, uh, that was done in LA at a 150 foot soundstage. Uh, it's also where all the nude scenes were done, which mm. Robert Duvall was not a fan of doing. He actually <laughs> said he angled himself purposefully. He said, I was quote unquote, not chivalrous back then. <laughs> he intentionally angled his back to the camera so that he wouldn't have to show anything. No dick pics from Robert Duvall. Nope. Uh, so the only other note that I have is that in 2004, George Lucas did a restoration on this movie. Oh, yeah. And of course, him being George Lucas, it's not just like a little restoration. He added a couple CG elements and tweaked a couple things as well, which is why some of the CG looks better than you would anticipate if you were to watch it on HBO Max. Um, I was going to say, it's interesting because it's not... I, I mean, it's not like Star Wars where we know it so well that even the slightest edits are noticeable. Um, it seems like it's something where he's doing an edit. And I know it was the same time he was doing the DVD restoration for Star Wars. So I guess he was just really in the editor's room He was um, during this time. The but it's interesting room. because the edits he makes just from because they're noticeable when you see the CGI is, I mean, for me, like, I think it works. Because when you're doing background and you're adding to an environment and an atmosphere, rather than like creating new scenes like what do you mean with entirely cg characters like oh, absolutely it's, it's so it's such a stark difference and we'll obviously get to we'll, all that we'll get, we get to that to. when we get to the original trilogy but i right, right. i tend to agree with you i don't hate all of the alterations that are made like you want to make the ewoks blink i don't care that's cool oh Fine. sure yeah, yeah but yeah. like when you're adding job of the hut into his the movie it's like, why are you doing this? Or the whole singing, you know, characters in uh, Jabba's Palace. <laughs> but we'll, we'll, we'll get to that when we get there. But for these, the, the CG additions of the atmosphere, I think, are, are very helpful. Because especially a movie like THX, which is like a very dystopian, like I guess it's the future or it's a, a, a very um, specific, you know, science fiction world that they're creating that I think that like having the extra, you know, background or the cables or the trains or whatever it is, I think helps. Yeah. Uh, so... As always, we're not really going to talk about the plot of the movie because we have two movies to get to today. I, I can give like a minor plot synopsis that it's a dystopian future where everyone is forced to work in a factory and they're not given names, they cannot procreate. And the lead is THX 1138, played by Robert Duvall, who falls in love, which is not allowed, and he has to escape because he has to escape the underground city. Yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, he just feels compelled to. Yes. Uh, but I speaking don't blame of, him. I wouldn't want no, to stay there. Of, of course, it didn't seem very pleasant. I will say, based on THX, though, the influence of even just that name, apparently Lucas named the numbers after his own San Francisco telephone number. Mm -hmm. So 8491138, THX corresponding to the buttons 849. And it's funny that THX became one of the most well-known sound logos when you would watch movies growing up to see how, well, how loud. That, but it's like in a lot of places. It, I think Lucas hides it in like all his movies. I think Pixar might hide it in all of their movies as well. It's become a well-known like movie, like Easter egg, not just in 
the Star Wars world, but like outside of that, it's just very well known. Which is funny that like just this very simple student film that became a bigger indie film had such an impact even in just the logo and even just the name and it's just like it's just funny like you said it's just such a big staple in in the film world i mean we'll talk about its influence after but uh since that was the synopsis we're just going to jump into the awards yes you want to tell the people what the awards are for this one um absolutely we are going to do uh we're going to have some fun nods here for anyone who's uh, been played along for, a while. for our show, but we have a uh, most iconic moment, uh, clunkiest dialogue uh, for the folks that uh, who know George uh, clunky dialogue is the term that people throw around for. Um, I can't really put it into words. It's kind of like, it's noticeably, uh, you know, a little not sloppy a little or a little wonky anyway. And then uh, we have the John Williams award uh, as everyone knows, John Williams, does the score for most of the Star Wars films. So we're dedicating this award to a piece of music, best piece of music. Uh, For folks who listened last season, we have the Bong Joon-ho Award, which is for best metaphor. We decided throughout our Bong Joon-ho show that he is a man of many, this is a man who knows how to make metaphors. So metaphorical. So so we're going to look for metaphors here. We also have the Wes Anderson Award, which is best production design, because for folks who are veteran listeners, (laughs) we have for Wes Anderson, uh, all the production, uh, you know, costumes, set pieces, etc., and then, of course, we have our biggest Star Wars moment. Um, you know, obviously, any moment in these films that would be a, a predecessor to Star Wars or anything that would influence Star Wars, the most Star Wars-like moment, uh, be it whatever comes out of Minus Steven's brains. So let's uh, let's get yeah. started. So why don't you pick up? What is your most iconic moment from THX One One Three Eight? I mean, there's so much of the movie takes place in its in in its one kind of environment, but I had to go with the ending. Mm-hmm. um I, you know i know a lot of movies you know bank on their endings but it's so iconic with the ladder and them calling out to him and they just did with the sunset it's just very the stark between the stark imagery like contrast and imagery like going from this white colorless background the whole movie and then you have these snippets of dark hallways and whatnot or, or tunnels and then all of a sudden you have this ladder to this bright sunset it's kind of like it's it's very and I don't want to dive into like too much of the influence, but it's like, it's so, it's like paints this ending in the way that like a lot of Hollywood endings to like feel like. So I had, I, I couldn't really go with anything else. No, that's a good one. Uh, uh, I went with Robert Duvall being beaten. I just feel like by those robots, oh, I feel yeah. like if you see a poster for this movie, it's typically that scene. There's no moment in this movie where I'm like, this is truly like an iconic moment i feel like this movie is very niche you have sure. to be in love with film in order to actually like want to take the time and sit down and watch it so no moment to me is like if you show it to anyone they're going to be like wow i know this movie you know it's not hey, like a picture yeah, yeah. of darth vader where you could go literally around the world and show a picture of that and they're like oh darth vader yeah of course so i'm gonna go with robert duvall being beaten by the robots no, it's good. It's very, like you said, like the poster image for this whole movie. Uh, uh, clunkiest dialogue. Yeah. I, again, there's not too much dialogue in this movie, but there's no exact quote I have either, but I'm going to go with the old man in the white room who's like trying to become the leader. Mm. I just felt like that whole sequence was very clunky. Sure. It was very forced and very clunky. And I'm like, what is happening? 
you know, like you no, have the con man in there who's like, you can't be leader. Like we've tried this several times over and it's just, it felt very like weird and out of place. I'm like, what's going on? My other runner up was just the hologram where he's like, I'm a hologram. Who are you? I'm a hologram. That was my runner up. I'm a hologram. And I'm like, <laughs> what, what's happening? Like I, well, the rules of the hologram made no sense in this movie, but well, to segue what you're saying into my award is that, that I, I think that a lot of this movie is it's it's a it, to me gives a very strange pass because it kind of allows for clunky dialogue because of the world that they live in. You yeah. know what I mean? Like with robots and holograms and it's like this in the, the undistinguished like time period of just like society is not moving in a normal fashion. So it's not like you have these characters, even in a big sci-fi universe who are like, you know, sharing romantic dialogue, even though there is, I guess a little bit of that, but it's like, there like you said, there there's, isn't. <laughs> Right, it's not as noticeable. More chemistry here than between Natalie Portman and uh, that's what I'm driving at. There's not it's that it doesn't leave room in the way that Star Wars does, where it's a sweeping epic. You know what I mean? This is a very this is a very minimalistic movie in general. Right. So the only line I had because was the the narrator voice the of the male voice saying, "Um, uh, we're picking up on some illegal uh, illegal sexual activity." Gave, it may more of just gave me uh it was more of like gave me a laugh but it's just funny because you have to put yourself in this environment so it's like you don't hear people saying we're picking up on some illegal sexual activity unless you're the cops busting in on a, a prostitute you know what i mean so yeah that's true <laughs> it's just funny uh yeah this whole yeah that is good that's a good one because you have to put yourself and immerse yourself in this world it's one of those movies where you like like many science fiction films unless you're buying into the universe it's hard to take a lot of it seriously but this movie and we'll get save it for the end they do most of what they do in a in a plausible way like i said even the clunky dialogue and the stuff with the robots and the holograms it's like it works because it's no you bring up a really good point because of how minimalistic the world and the character development is it just feels right that the dialogue is as straightforward as it is yeah because this world has also kind of absolved everyone from subtlety every conversation is very like deliberate right uh so let's go into the john williams award go for it what's your um i went with the uh i went with the ending music uh it's uh saint matthew's passion by bach that's at least that's what it's uh by the old the old Bach um Van Bach no uh, Ludwig uh, Van Beethoven not Bach what is Sebastian Bach yeah yeah um but again it's it's just I think that in terms of music again going with more of like what would later be coined as like a Hollywood ending because this is a very like anti-Hollywood kind of movie um it's the one time for me it's like it really feels like it's again it's building to this moment and it was it just, isn't uh, it isn't anti-Hollywood it, which is what's so interesting about it it's I think that a movie like this could be made today and we'll talk about the influence, obviously, but like even something like, um, you know, sharing similarities with Ex Machina about this whole idea of choice and, you know, something about um, and you escaping. Know, right. And it's like there are bald the, thing escaping a bald robot containing life escaping a play. But I think that like we would accept something like Hollywood would accept a movie like THX more so today rather than they would have in the 70s like you said people watching they're like we want our money back like you know what i mean so yeah, when i think of this really did not care for it right so when i think of the ending and i hear the music i'm like this is what 
subliminally Hollywood would tell me is this is the ending. This is the most pivotal moment. And like, I feel it through the music in the way that John Williams, as we say, will See, carry a lot of the Star Wars. That's moments. why I went with the opening credits though. I oh, feel yeah. like the opening credits sucks you into this dark world. You're just like, oh man, this is about to get real dreary. Mm-hmm. And the way that they do the opening credits where they roll backwards you know, instead of bottom to top, they go top to bottom. And it's I just it. very off. You just from the onset, the, between the music and the way the, what's called the titling moves, you're just like, something is really off here. Like, what's going on? Well, I want to I wanna save a lot of the discussion for like the end end. But like, what I loved about this movie from beginning to finish is it subliminally, you know, um, uh, kind of envelops your audience expectations in the ways if we were like an android ourselves, like as if we were oh. one of the patients ourselves. Absolutely. Like, between the visuals and the colors, and but the music is the same way because like you almost feel like you're in a clockwork orange and your eyes are being like, you know, straight open. open. Like, yeah, and so, and it's funny because the movie has that effect and I think it's part of what makes it kind of like timeless, but I'll save all that for the end. Uh, so the Bong Joon-ho award for best metaphor. I feel like the best one is something you mentioned before, the ending, the sunset, which ironically wasn't Robert Duvall doing. That was uh, someone else because that was a B shot. So they put a bald cap on someone and there was no actually like, there was no platform underneath him. He had to act like he was coming out of something, but it was just a hole in the sand. That's uh, pretty funny. It is funny. And they put a bald cap on him, even though he had really long hair. But because it's in, you know, out of focus, it doesn't matter. The focus is on the sun. I think mm-hmm. they shot with a hundred with a thousand uh, meter lens, which means that they had to be like really far away from. It, yeah, because they went and they directed it at the sun, not at the person. Uh, they wanted to make the sun as big as possible. But the ending sunset was very like it, it's metaphorical, man. You know, it's about <laughs> the story is ending, but like I don't know. There's a new no. beginning of some kind. No, of course. It's really, I mean, it's, and it's the most visually stark difference. Oh, absolutely. Because so it, for the yeah. first time in the entire movie, you are seeing actual sunlight, not an artificial fluorescent light. Yeah, it's it, it works. It's straightforward. But again, like that works for this movie, you know, um, my kind of the next two words kind of bleed together just to but it's for, yeah. for, for metaphor. I kind of the Bong Joon-ho award. I kind of had to go with the idea of uniform, the bald heads and the costumes and the white background. It's kind of um, oh, that's a good one. I didn't even think of that, but that's good. I, that's really I th- good. I think that uniform in general, and again, this is this is it, everything about this movie teases into my final thoughts about it. That like the way that it puts these characters together that they and that's why I love the, the the traffic jam of the bold characters is what it's doing is this movie is kind of bleeding all their characters together into one look so everyone looks the same their uniform is identical they all have bald heads and I think that that idea of uniform thinning very, thinning hits thinning. <laughs> thinning I think it ties into this idea of a controlled society and that's of course the whole movie's message but like it works because you're making me believe that these characters all look alike, even though part of the beauty of it, for lack of better words, is that the characters are different. You see the, the relationship between Robert Duvall and even uh, and, and the woman and even even versus Donald Pleasance. And you just see, and even that the one guy who comes, I don't know his name, if he has a name, the one guy who walks into the room from far away and he waves at them. Um, no, I don't remember t- if he has the, a name. 
the tall man. And I and I like that the I can't. Man, the slender the, man. The, the slender man. And I like that I can't even give them all names because this movie is trying to make me believe these characters act as one. They act well, as Well, because they don't even unit. really have names. They have numbers and letters attached to them. They're not names. It's kind of like, I mean, this is jumping a little, but that's kind of an influence on, I, I mean, I, I doubt J.J. Abrams really took this into account, but that's kind of an influence on The Force Awakens, where the stormtroopers no longer have identities. They're numbers. You know, right. Finn is FN1, uh, A2, whatever. But so. there's a reason that, like, you know, like that this, uh, Lucas clearly loves this idea of, of taking characters and putting them in a nameless society. I mean, even, even, even American Graffiti, which we'll get to obviously, but it's it, the way that you, these characters kind of all look the same. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of loves that idea, but even the, the numbers, like you could even say it's a commentary on like the Holocaust. You could say like, they're all like, they're all enslaved and they're all kind of have these numbers and they're all like branded in a way. And so I'd look at the idea of uniform as a metaphor, but. Yeah. And that's your production design as well. Yeah, I'll just segue and then I'll let you take over. But it's basically my production design is like I said more of the costumes and set pieces, but really just when I think production design and I look at this movie, it's exactly what I was just describing. Just the idea of a white background, the way the movie subliminally makes you feel like you're watching a completely uniform society. So it's it's the same as my production design. But yeah, my production design is probably the white room. Just mm-hmm. it impressed me. I mean, this is after 2001 A Space Odyssey, but you know, in 2001 A Space Odyssey, Kubrick had to work extremely hard to capture no shadows and pure white. And that's kind of the energy I think Lucas is going for in this movie. And that he does it pretty well. When Robert Duvall and that other guy are just walking for, we don't even know how long, just in an endless white field, you're just like, what is going on? It's just vast nothingness, like I love pure it. nothingness. And it's really good design. I think of um, the dreamlike way that all of Hollywood movies and TV shows have kind of impressed this idea of either another world, another dimension or heaven. And they kind of have this idea of like it being a white room, you know, um, even like the- And Lucas you know, kind of turned that on its head in this one because that's, yeah. a, that's a hell. It's an everlasting white field of nothingness. Right, exactly. And I think that's what's very interesting about it is we've always been, I mean, how many- it's not even like not even specific examples it's that image of someone when a character like goes to heaven in a movie or they die or they see the glimpse of the afterlife or when they go into like some kind of other dimension and how many times have we just seen nothing but a white background it's become this idea of a uh you know an ecstasy a kind of like a, a very transcendental almost like a buddhist type like spiritual realm so it's funny that you that's a great point that it's like it's always Hollywood is portrayed as a, such a positive thing. It's, it's a heavenly kind of place and it's literally a hell here. So, yeah. So <laughs> biggest influence on star Wars, I wrote down, well, obviously it's a man against an empire. So that's pretty obvious. The ending sunset, you know, star Wars is big on sunsets, but the one I really wrote down was bureaucracy plus budget plus high speed chase equals the Phantom Menace. <laughs> And that's very much this movie. This movie is about the crushing blow of demo- of bureaucracy. There's a little bit of budgets in here because why does the speed why does the chase end? Because they went over budget. They went over five percent budget to try and capture Robert Duvall, which is crazy. And then there's a high speed chase. So it's all the seeds being laid down for future Star Wars movies. Yeah. 
I, I think that, um, I mean, you just covered every single base, including the one, the, I only picked one element. I mean, you could go with the binary sunset or the, you know, you could go with the sunset being the image of, uh, you know, someone meeting their destiny, whatever it is. Um, I really focused heavily, though, like in watching and thinking of this, the my biggest Star Wars moment, I think, was like a, like the speeder chase. So, like, I couldn't help but think of how much Amer- uh, Lucas love, loves ca- loves cars and loves the idea of drag racing and how that ties to American graffiti, but he clearly loves this idea of of vehicles chasing each other. We had nixed our idea of best vehicle, and you can't help but think of this ton- uh, this tunnel sequence. Yeah. And I just, I literally looked at this, I mean, it's a breathtaking sequence. It's arguably the most intense and, and, and you know, entertaining part of this well, movie. Definitely in this movie, yeah. Um, and I just thought of like how, I thought of the speeders in um, Return of the Jedi when they're chasing each other through the forest. And I thought of, of course, in A New Hope when they're the X-Wing, you know, a TIE fighter chase. Um, well, we'll get to American Graffiti in a moment, you know? Exactly. And so he clearly loves this idea of a chase. And like, it's funny, Lucas is like, I can't write a script, but like, he knows how to, to capture a moment. He knows how to like have these intense moments. And it's funny because even the, um, shit, what do you call it? Um... <laughs> Uh, Sheldon dresses up as it in the uh, in Big Bang Theory. The the what the sounds the sounds going past the. Um, I have no idea. I, I don't watch the Big Bang Theory. No, but the zooming it's the zooming sound. Even the way that ca- the, um, oh the Doppler effect. Jeez. Doppler effect. Holy okay. smokes! All right, so we're gonna cut all this. So like even. <laughs> Uh, no, there's one where he's got a costume and it's like it's like smaller. It's in the first season when the show is actually you know not big. But anyway, but my point is with George Lucas, with George Lucas and the speeders and doing all these things and even capturing the Doppler effect. You know the sound of uh, he's got the sound effects, which I read uh, on one of the notes. He actually captured the sounds of women screaming mm. to capture the sounds of uh, the sounds of the police motorcycles are sped up sounds of women screaming together in a tiled bathroom, which I think is very interesting because all that to say is that George Lucas is such a production man. He's like, you know, say what you will about his screenwriting, but his way of capturing film and the way he does. And that speeder chase reminded me so much of what uh, he does. Yeah. I also have one more influence on Star Wars and that's like the fact that he built a sci-fi world that was used a lot of sci-fi films up to this point and even after whenever you see a sci-fi film everything is very clean every like very pristine lucas wanted like used worlds everything looked dingy and used and like in disrepair you know yeah it's so different he does a good he's a good way of doing that because a lot of um uh movies that depict uh sci-fi futures are all very clean uh looking and you know you think of how like um Neil Blomkamp, for example, in like District Nine, will present like a very grungy and dirty kind of future. And like, it's funny because Lucas, uh, you know, he has those elements where he's good at capturing, like you said, a used. That's a great word, like a used world. Yeah, used world. Yeah, it's just interesting because when you first said influence, like biggest influence, when we were talking about the award, I texted you. I'm like, did we want like influences on George Lucas who made this movie or influences Mm -hmm. like this movie had on other people and I just wanted to note that I feel like this movie had a lot of like Soviet cinema influence oh yeah this movie felt very um Vertoffian like I don't know if you've ever seen man with a movie camera Mm -hmm. but it had very much that kind of feel and I it just the way we talked about like Bong Joon-ho and memories of a murder I feel like George was affected by Vertov 
And then in return, the Soviet cinema by Tarkovsky was influenced by this movie because Solaris comes out a year later. Yeah, that's a great point because it's really kind of like a blurred line in the discussion, but it's like this movie doesn't feel American at all. Like it doesn't feel like it's a great that like it's got Robert Duvall and has American actors in it, but it's also Robert Duvall wasn't huge at this point. Right, exactly. He hadn't really made a name for himself, but that that goes even into the idea of what I was my my notion of like focusing on like the idea of uniform is very much so what you're saying about like Soviet cinema. I mean, I remember in college studying, there was a whole thing where we talked about Russian and Soviet influence on films and this idea of dictatorship. And there's a, a huge point of what I wanted to talk about, but not like get lost in because obviously I talk too much, but the whole idea of like even um, Sen's dialogue being taken from speeches by uh, Richard Nixon and uh, the film predicting, um, you know, like even though it's here on IMDb, like the film predicts um, separate TV channels for violent sex and comedy and news. And like in 1971, there were no dedicated channels for those types of entertainment. So it's uh, this whole idea of a controlled society is very Soviet. You know, you um, kind of made me reevaluate my best metaphor with what you just said. I feel yeah. like a lot of pop culture and just cultural influences are probably the best metaphor. The one that came to mind is that picture of Jesus that they use. Oh, yeah. And how he's not really Jesus. He is a corporate logo at this point, telling Mm -hmm. you to buy more stuff. Of course. Buy more to be happy. And I feel like that's George poking at the religion, the religious... I mean, it's no secret. That's another influence on Star Wars too, what he does with the Jedi. It's the bogged down bureaucracy of a religion. You know, that that's what it's all about. You know, dogma bringing something down into a pit that it shouldn't be. This should be, a, Jesus should be about helping you instead of telling you to buy more. It's very interesting. I guess it's only gotten worse with the rise of evangelical. No, of, of course. But it's very interesting that you bring up that point because this is almost like a reverse effect of what of what Lucas is trying to say about dogma. Because if, if, if Star Wars and the idea of the Jedi are about light and hope and this whole idea of a force, for lack of better words, um, giving people positive influence, THX is all about this almost dogmatic way of saying of society controlling in a negative way which like you said is a very mirror representation of what it's how out of hand the idea of even jesus has become over the years it's oh, very... would you like to would you like to change <laughs> religions and get a free book, a free book jesus. jesus no 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 but that's exactly what he's doing he clearly has this like um stigma for 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 theology and and, and dogma and i think it's well what's interesting about george and we'll talk about this i guess in a new hope more but he has a very like he loves religion i'm not saying he's a religious person but he loves the stories and theology aspects of it like to create the force and the jedi and star wars in general he spent a lot of time investigating greek roman mythology Hindi mythology, Christianity mythology, like he meshed them all together into this one uniform force. Mm-hmm. So he has reverence for uh, religion. It's just, I don't, his problem is when religion becomes a business, that's when you run into problems. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that, kind of like 
with all the directors we've talked about, their first movie like lays the seeds down and then they just build up. The problem with George, and this isn't really, it is and it isn't his fault, but he, like we said at the beginning, he only made six movies. So he didn't really get the chance to expand on all of his theories in total. I mean, yes, in the prequels, he hits it home, you know, harder, but you know, Scorsese has had 30 plus movies to talk about who he is as a director and his, I think he's made three or four movies purely about religion. But that's a good segue. Yeah, let's get into American Graffiti. America is having a love affair with a movie, American Graffiti. Where were you in 62? Easily the best movie so far this year, New York Times. Sensationally funny, profoundly affecting, Los Angeles Times. A very exciting experience, Family Circle. Super fine, Time Magazine. Four stars, highest rating. By all means, go and enjoy it, New York Daily News. You'll love American Graffiti, rated PG. So, George Lucas conceived this idea during the making of THX because while filming he realized just how bleak of a story he was making and he told someone on set that he wants to make a more fun movie next time he uh and then he started actually talking about details according to I think merch he was like I want I want to make something about wolfman and yeah yeah kids driving around and Coppola thought it was a good idea because he yeah. also told George, like, you need to make a more accessible movie. This movie was, I mean, again, we have to go into Coppola because he's a big part of the story. Mm-hmm. American Zotrope was in financial trouble. Like, the THX only made $2.4 million, which, you know, you think in the 70s, one's money is like big but it's really it's even back then two million dollars is not enough so coppola is obviously approached to make a little film called the godfather i don't know if you've ever heard of it uh, i've never heard of it. we don't have to go into the whole background of that movie but george lucas also helps lucas with whatever he needs on making the godfather i think he's actually credited having worked on the godfather um so when it came time to make uh, the next movie, George Lucas wanted to make American Graffiti, obviously. The studios hated the idea of American Graffiti because they hated the intercutting. They hated how there's no true narrative. They just didn't understand what they were looking at. So it was like a two year struggle to get this movie made, but Coppola stepped in and asserted his dominance because after Godfather, he can pretty much say and do whatever he wanted. He won the Academy Award for Best Picture. So, and making, you know, obviously one of the best movies ever, like, end of sentence. Yeah, one yeah. of the best movies ever. So they get the green light from Universal. Uh, at that point, Universal was starting an initiative uh, they wanted to make five movies, each less than a million dollars, because they figured we'll give smaller directors the chance to make movies. The other four movies were Hired Hand, The Last Movie, Silent Running, and Taking Off. I've not watched any of those movies. Um, it The shoot was 28 nights, so that's really not a lot of time, especially since they had to shoot everything at night 
in California when the sun goes down at nine and comes back up at five. So it's a shorter work night than even a normal day would be. So to compensate for this, George would shoot with two cameras at the same time. So he would have, you typically on a movie, it's one camera on one person and then one camera on the other person and then you get the wide shot or like reverse it. Mm -hmm. But here, George was like, we don't have time and we don't have the budget. So I'm gonna shoot two cameras at once. Right. Uh, he got a cheap crew. Some people weren't even like paid because Lucas promised them that their names would be in the credits, which was revolutionary at the time. Not everyone it around this time got credit if you worked right. on a movie. Which has now become a tradition, which is why closing credits often last so long. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if you watch WandaVision, but the credits go on for literally five minutes or even longer sometimes. So, uh... uh so, uh, Harrison Ford, ever heard of him? He uh, <laughs> joins the cast, and George Lucas wants him to cut his hair because he had really long, late, uh, early 70s hair and it didn't fit the 1950s motif. But Harrison Ford said, no. Like, he I'm, not in, I'm not in this movie long enough for you to, war for, to warrant me cutting my hair. So they agreed to give him a cowboy hat, and that's how he became the cowboy. That is how he became the cowboy. Uh, the movie was kind of based on George Lucas's life. He obviously grew up in the 40s and 50s, and was enamored with the idea of sex and cars. Uh, Terry the Toad is supposedly George Lucas as a freshman, a nervous kid, especially around girls. John is George and about to go to junior college. Yep. John is Richard Dreyfuss's character. Uh, plus, and then Kurt is George becoming an, oh, sorry, John was the drag racer. So that was like George in junior college. And then Kurt, who was Richard Dreyfuss, was George becoming an adult and about to go to USC. Uh, so the movie is made in the can. It has 40 different tracks from 1950s musicians. And of course, Universal is pissed off because this raises the price tag of the movie. That's one of the, the, of the notes is that one of the reasons that the movie was put off is because George pushed for them to put 40 tracks and they're like, listen, it, this is. Yeah, it was not until Coppola came in and put his weight behind it and said, no, we're keeping the songs, and even put in a couple of his dollars into the movie yeah, yeah. that they were allowed to do it. But that was a big point of contention. The studio just didn't get this movie. They wanted to put it on TV. What ultimately saved it is George had a couple of uh, screenings for the movie, and he made sure that the theaters were packed because he knew it would play better with a bigger audience. So with the Universal executives, he would book out like, big theaters like 500 seat theaters and everyone would walk out going i loved it yeah and that ultimately forced universal to go okay i guess we might have something here yeah so it gets released and it gets oscar nominations a lot of them actually nominated for best picture best director best supporting actress best original screenplay best film editing loses them all but still crazy that yeah. it gets nominated for that Listen to this year, though, for Best Picture, all right? The Sting wins Best Picture. The other nominees are American Graffiti, Cries and Whispers, The Exorcist, and A Touch of Class. Jeez. I don't know much about... I mean, I've seen A Touch of Class. It's fine. But, like... 
that's a big year. American Graffiti, Cries and Whispers, The Exorcist, and The Sting. That's like a pretty stacked year. That's pretty good. Yeah, it's also interesting to think that George Lucas has never won an Oscar before. Mm-hmm. But considering I mean, his, he's often nominated, especially Star Wars with their sound effects and special and special effects and whatnot. Not just his nomination, but like his influence over Hollywood in general. Yeah, that's all the notes I really have for American Graffiti. That's Again, fine. There's no synopsis, but I can just say that the movie is, I guess, several vignettes of kids out on the night before they leave for college the next day. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's get, just jump right into the awards. That's so fine. There's the most iconic moment. I'll take it away with this one. I'm going to go with the last race. I just feel like that's what the whole movie was kind of building to, even if mm-hmm. you didn't know it especially when the car flips that was like holy shit how did you even do that on this budget um yeah that's that's some really ahead of its time uh like onset stunt filmmaking that would almost i don't know if it would directly influence someone like nolan but it in, certainly influenced hollywood in terms of like taking these big risks with these giant set pieces and stunts yeah so what's your most iconic moment um i went with the uh, similar thx i went with the ending kurt getting on the plane specifically um i think for Yo, um, can i just take a break for like yeah. before you get into it of course sorry to cut you off i just want to like make a note how relaxed was that airport security and how jarring was it it was like what is happening you just it's, walk up to a plane on the tarmac what it's funny because you look at like i see you see a lot of movies you look at like plane planes depicted in movies before 9 11 and you're like wow things were different with security and terrorism but then like you go even further back and you're like really like you could just kind of like waltz in there and just kind of except for like you're like just getting in a cab you're like all right well you know he literally, the, the car is literally like right next to the airplane. You're like, what is happening? He just uh, walks on. Like <laughs> the plane is about to, it was almost like a train sequence. Like, felt- you know, how many movies their train is like about to leave the station. This movie, the plane is literally, the propellers are fucking rolling and Richard Dreyfus has to run on. And it's like, what? It felt what? like a dream. It felt like an absolute dream. And I think part of that's part of why I picked it as my most iconic moment, because similar to THX, it's funny, these movies could not be more different. I'll save that for the end. But like, yet I found similarities because I watched them so close together that it's like, you know, where THX is this underground world of a white dystopian, like horrible background and someone escapes to their freedom and they climb up the ladder to the sunset is you have this, this movie of this world enveloped in this one small town and it takes place all in one night and everything is shot in the dark and there's these very, um, you know, loud engine cars and these, these hot girls and it's very like youthful and then all of a sudden like you've got this idea of like here's nostalgia and that's a big point of what I want to touch on and then you get this end it's like it's one of the only sequences, if I'm not mistaken, that's shot in the day. And then you have this idea of a plane taking off. You have all this movie about cars, then a plane taking off. And it's kind of like, this is a signifying the change. And eventually it's, you know, um, I, I just thought it was the, it was again, like THX, it's the moment. It's like a, it's the ending. It's the proper ending to the story. And I yeah. just thought it was a good. So what is the clunkiest dialogue to you? This was tricky. I'll be honest. <laughs> this is the one I had. I, this is, I had a trouble with two of the awards. Uh, this one is definitely up there. I, I so very similar to THX. I think that the di- the clunky dialogue in this movie is almost like necessary because it captures the times. So THX captures it's the clunky dialogue matches the 
robotic science fiction world they live in and this clunky dialogue matches like the way that people like spoke in the 50s obviously we weren't around but based on the way hollywood is depicted and the way that people talk about it yeah. this isn't far off so i mean i mean even the line from kurt which i i guess is a runner-up is they saying to you're the most beautiful exciting thing i've seen in my life and i don't know anything about you yeah it's there's still like there's something sweet about that though. i was just gonna say there's still a genuine romance to it that i couldn't i couldn't in good faith mock that line i couldn't say this is not this doesn't work it works for the character the, the line i went with was carol the girl saying uh when they're harrison ford's racing and she says you or, or i no she says it to john they're talking about sorry they're talking about the beach boys she says you big weenie if i had a boyfriend he'd pound you and even that is very like sexual very very gay <laughs> but even then it's like I get it. Like characters called each other weird names back then, but that, it's kind of reminded me of the Friday the Thirteenth award when um, there was that um, there was the mother and and son in in part five, and she says uh, each each yeah, yeah she's each a fucking sloppy big dildo, you know, mind my my language, but then she says you big weenie. If I had a boyfriend, he'd pound you. I'm like I don't know what to pick. It's like it's all clunky, but it all is the part of the environment of the fifties. So yeah, I agree. I mine went to um, I'm forgetting her name, but. She said, "Like I don't understand why you have to go all of all the way around the country to find what you already have here, or something like that. Like you have love here, you have a family here. It's like I don't know. That wouldn't fly today. I, no, like, you know, at a certain point, do you know what the clunkiest dialogue was? It's like we're eighteen now, we're adults. Like what? No, like <laughs> I know. Granted, we live in twenty twenty one, where like you really don't become an adult anymore until you're like thirty years old." But the concept of like, you're an adult at 18 and you've met a girl you plan on marrying at the age of 18, it's like, I don't know, very strange. To be fair to 18 year olds, you know, uh, when you're that age, you kind of can't foresee how much of an adult you're not yet. And so like, you think like you kind of, I mean, not me personally, I had moments to sure when I was like 18 or 19 where I'm like, yeah, this is it. I'm an adult. I can make my own decisions. And then you look back like 10, whatever so years later and you're like, all right, I was never mind. Like I didn't know what I was doing. Whereas like a lot of 18 year olds think like this is it. Like I can, you know, buy cigarettes and pornos. I don't even know what an 18 year old thinks these days, but like, you know what I mean? It's like uh, probably not cigarettes and porn <laughs> because you can get porn online. You just have to lie about being 18 and cigarettes. No one smokes that. The kids don't smoke that anymore. It's now, they va- now they vape it. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, I think it's tricky. I, I don't know. It's, it's, yeah, but that I like, tricky. I like that idea. The award that I also had a problem with was the John Williams Award because there were so many How great can you songs. Like the, it was impossible to pick. I'll, I'll let you kick this one off. I, I don't even know, honestly. There were, like I said, there were just so many good songs. Um, I'll go with the opening song, "Rock Around the Clock." because they actually considered using that as the title for the movie. I just feel like, again, kind of like THX, it sucks you into the movie and puts you right into like what the mood you need to be like immediately. George Lucas has that inane ability, even in Star Wars where like he knows how to grip you from the moment the movie starts. Like even in Star Wars, it starts with dun, 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 dun. Like the opening notes of his movies are always like meant to suck you right in. George is a showman. Like I was saying about talking about THX is like maybe his script writing, maybe he, you know, a hearsay, but he, as a production man and as a showman, like he knows, hey, here's the beginning, here's the end, and here's all that happens in the middle. He knows how to tell a story in a traditional way 
that Hollywood has done for years since. And it's like that way of like, here's the clear beginning. And I'm going to open with this big soundtrack. I'm going to open with this iconic moment. I'm going to close with this very memorable moment. He knows exactly how to do it in a three-act structure that works with bookends. Well, that's the argument about George Lucas that I'm sure we'll get into when we talk about um, Empire or something. It's, or maybe not even Empire. We could talk about it now. It's just, I feel like George is a great storyteller. He is. He's an exceptional storyteller. It's just sometimes you need someone to polish your work and you just don't let people do it. Like sometimes you 100%. see your own worst enemy here. Like if someone were to have written the scripts for the prequels, like if you had helped write the script and someone were to step in and like touch him up, maybe they would have been like a little cleaner. Or oh like, yeah. Or like Empire, you know, you write the script, but on set you have the real director like clean it up, just like polish it a little. It works could- a lot better. I think there's a reason for most audiences that George's best work is the stuff are, 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 are the, the movies that he's involved with, with other people. Like the fact that empire strikes back has the rep, the rep it does. And it's, you know, directed by someone else. Yeah. You um, can even make the argument of Indiana Jones. The, I mean, obviously not the fourth one, but like, let's just, go with Raiders of the Lost Ark. Spielberg is obviously the one at the head of the helm here, but George Lucas wrote the script. Right. So he, but you're not going to knock the storytelling because he wrote an exceptional story. He knows the beats of the stories. It's just the dialogue needs polishing more often than not. Anyway. um, But I went with, I, you went with rock around the rock around the clock. And I, I, I felt like the only other, I, I, the only other answer I think it really works for me is Johnny Be Good, Chuck Berry, because yeah. that encapsulates the fifties. I mean, my thing is, I had Heart and Soul by the Cleftones. I think that's more of an obscure answer that really works. I think it captures more of this idea of nostalgia in a somber kind of way because this movie is very fun and it's very exciting and very funny but it's also like kind of like a reflection of like living in the past and how it's not ultimately it doesn't it doesn't work so heart and soul i think is like probably the better answer but johnny be good is like that's i mean i know like a lot of generations will associate that with back to the future but it's like that is if not rock around the clock, which inspired, you know, the theme song for happy days. It's like, it's Johnny B. Good is like the, it captures the fifties better than almost any other song in this, uh, in, in this movie. And considering there's, you know, 40 tracks, it's like, where do you, what do you really pick? You, like I song, said, this one was probably the hardest award where you're just like, w- there's too many. What I will say about the music and we don't have to harp on this too much, but I think that what's, this is the only time we'll come across this kind of award, the John Williams award for, actual soundtracks because other than this it's score well for george lucas yes correct that's what i mean for the george lucas show that we're doing and i think that it's important to note that the soundtrack is almost like a character in itself this movie doesn't work without the soundtrack oh absolutely and and i think that's why george pushing it was ultimately that's why george and francis ford coppola fought so hard to put it in like i can't imagine what this movie would be with the soundtrack you can't. And it's funny because the soundtrack becomes the personality of the film because if you watch this movie, it's almost like a Scorsese movie. It's almost like... But that, or a, that's or why a, this is so astounding because... Mm-hmm. Sorry to cut you off. No, it's all good. This is another thing George Lucas doesn't get credit for, but in a way he revolutionized movies. He was the first 
not maybe he wasn't the first, but this is obviously like the biggest movie to use soundtrack over score. And then Scorsese follows him. Of course. And then Tarantino follows him. And the ripple effect just keeps going. Like George Lucas is a trendsetter when it comes to this stuff. Prior to this movie, a lot of people just use score. Right. Maybe and one song at the end credits, but like this changed everything. And I think ultimately, as much as we're doing a Star Wars show overall, this is like we're this is really it really is a George Lucas show because it's kind of like you talk about what the influence is on all of future films. And like really like when I think of the soundtrack, like you just said, you put it best, it's a ripple effect, it's a trendsetter. And even the fact that he uses songs in the background when characters are speaking, you don't even realize that it's there. It's almost like it's almost like having the radio on when you're having a conversation with someone. It's kind of like it's so it's some of them are so faded and it just adds to the personality. Well, of he knows it. when to make uh, music diegetic and uh, non-diegetic. Absolutely. Uh, um, so what is your Bong Joon-ho award for best um, metaphor? I kind of like will weave, again, I'll kind of weave this. Well, no, not I'll weave the prior award, the John Williams award into it. As I, I, It's not just the music, but um, I, I said like the past itself, a metaphor for being stuck, luxury, um, you know, uh, <laughs> luxury being a placeholder for contentment and holding back i think that the whole this will actually go into the next award similar to thx it's like just the the whole idea of the past being the metaphor the 50s being the idea of being stuck and content um it's really just there's too much like the movie doesn't the movie works because it's got a core story but it's really because it's the 50s because it's so specifically an era that it's depicting makes it work so it's really just I didn't have anything one. specific, but I mean, the only other one that I picked up on immediately was that cars equal freedom. That's good. But that's something that uh, seems pretty self-evident to me. So best production design, kind of like you, I, I had like just the generic like 1950s vibe, the way in which the cars look and the diner. I, the diner specifically was just very like 50s. The diner was good, yeah. Yeah, I mean, everything just looked right out of uh, what you think the 1950s was supposed to be. And honestly, in a way, this movie, kind of like Mad Men, is interesting because it depicts the 50s in probably the way that it was rather than the way we idealize it to be. Like, Absolutely. you know, most people, when they think of the 1950s now, think of like a prudish American society. But George Lucas is literally telling you, like, just like Mad Men is telling you, like, no, the 50s were like very sexual. There was like right. a lot of sex, rock and roll and drugs going on. Just like mm -hmm. it's not rock and roll the way we perceive it to be anymore. Right. Right. And it was it's funny because it was all considered to be you hear anyone talk about the 50s going into the 60s and how taboo it was for older generations, because it's kind of like for them, they're not used to, you know, whatever, seeing, uh, you know, girls walk around wearing shorts or to hear like, you know, music played uh, on any kind of electric guitar because it insinuates this very loose behavior. And so it's like it's funny that they, they just capture that all through the era in itself. I mean, for production design i mean i had the cars specifically but even just going off of what you're saying it's just like the whole idea of it the production the production design being like a character in itself the production being part of the story you know what yeah. i mean it's not just the characters and their journeys it's the whole atmosphere of it the worst production design is that airport security <laughs> <laughs> it's 
so relaxed. So what is your biggest influence on Star Wars? Um, there's the call, um, the desire to leave home and chase a bigger calling is the way that I had it, uh, which is Steve, Ron Howard's also, character. Uh, yeah, but what's interesting is, you know, you have some people who are want, ready to like go and then it, you have the dichotomy of Luke in this story because you have Ron Howard with hair. Um, <laughs> as Ronnie Howard. Mark, as Ronnie Howard. Um, he ultimately stays at home, kind of like Luke wanted to do originally. He's like, no, I can't go. It's so far away. So mm -hmm. you have the Owen and Anakin dichotomy here of like Richard Dreyfuss saying, I'm ready to go off where right. uh, Ron Howard is like, no, I need to stay on my homestead. It's very interesting because it's very, it, it's ultimately anti-Luke Skywalker. Luke Skywalker's whole thing is he abandons his home to to go to chase a bigger dream. Well, and that's- what character you- uh, find yourself connecting to more right because if you find yourself connecting to richard dreyfus more you're more like a luke skywalker that's my point is he at, at the end that's why i love with the plane because it, it's it's it transcends this moment of of actually leaving he's literally leaving he's literally taking off in a plane it's the most visual metaphor i mean the plane's a better metaphor but either way it's the it's the that idea it's that luke skywalker way of saying like i you know what this is my home and i and I love my home, but it's like I have to. I have to see what else is out there. Uh, my that was yeah. the only. The only other answer I had that was uh, was Harrison Ford playing a drag racing Han Solo. I, was, I wrote that down. Harrison I'll Ford equals Han Solo. I'll let you take it from here. Now you mentioned uh, all the ones I really had. The only one that I had, and I don't know if this is true because George Lucas didn't actually do it, but in the Mandalorian, uh, little baby Yoda, Grogu himself, has an obsession with the gear shift knob. And in this movie, that's what uh, Kurt gifts. What's her face? Uh, I'm blanking um, on her name. Carol, Chrissy. Uh, yeah. Uh, Carol. Yeah. That, that's what Kirk gifts Carol, or his uh, gear shift knob. So I, I don't know if like Dave Filoni and John uh, uh, Favreau are like using this movie at all, but I felt like the gear shift was like very American graffiti. Yeah. That's a really great nod. I never even thought of that. So let's get into final thoughts about George Lucas's earlier career here. Why don't you start us off? Pick a movie, um, any movie. Pick a movie, any movie, but really we're only, gonna, we're only going to focus on two of them. Well, I like I had said earlier in the show that I these movies cannot be more different, and yet I found similarities to them. I think that one movie, it's it's so funny that George picks starts with THX, which is so forward in a dystopian terrible future um this horribly controlled society uh and one character who dreams to break out of that and then in the other realm he's got a very um like seductive kind of uh ode to the past so he's got this um you know this whole nostalgia baked world of cars and girls and young and dreams and stuff and yet there's still at least one or two characters who talk about breaking out of this of this environment so i love this idea of the rebellion against society which later leads to the literal rebellion against society in star wars um i think the influence here on star wars is undeniable but also the influence on future films in general there's a lot we've talked about in this whole episode of the influence the the direct tropes and ripple effects um it, i to not to not to I don't know the direct quote from the recent quote from Francis Ford Coppola. I wish that George had done more after I was watching these. Say that. 
after watching these, I really, I, and again, it's, it's an oxymoron that we're doing a whole Star Wars show because we love Star Wars. And yet it's like watching these movies. I'm like, this guy really does have talent. Like, again, say we will about the dialogue, but it's like he, George knows how to tell a story. No, absolutely. That's how I was literally going to start my, um, my notes here that I guess I love Star Wars. I do. I love all of it, but there's a period between episode six and one. It was like a 14 year period where you didn't do anything really, George. And like, sure, I guess you wanted to be with your family and you're building up some stuff. But even after the prequels, you could have proved to the world, hey, I'm more than just what you think I am. Because he is a great, like I said earlier, he is a great storyteller. He just maybe kind of like Spielberg, like some slack Spielberg gets is like he doesn't write his own material, but at the end of the day, he's still a fucking great director. That doesn't take away from his ability to direct. It Maybe it enhances it because maybe he's not that great of a screenwriter. Yes, he wrote Close Encounters, but like that's one out of his like 40 movies. And he's considered, you know, one of the greatest directors of all time. I think George Lucas could have had a very similar fate if he had pushed it harder. I don't know. It's it's, it's hard know. to know what would have been or could have been. It's just very interesting to me that he, of course, like like I'm just piggybacking off what you're saying that he like they all will will just ponder what could have been, and yet like it's just funny the two other features we have from him could not be more different. Like it's not like he's just telling a regular. Like I just love that his movies don't never have never taken place in a contemporary time period it's he's got this like i said he's got the dystopian future he's got the 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 wonderful past and he's got star wars which is in a whole galaxy of itself so it's, so it's funny that he's clearly got wild imagination even when he's just describing the 50s and telling uh making a, a nod to his own past it's very interesting that he's got this range he's got a he's got the range of like what like a, a you would imagine like a student filmmaker would have which is funny that thx spawned from a student film that he had made you know what i mean he's it's got this like wild that your first feature film is like a student film i know coppola did that shit too like yeah um, obviously coppola did softcore porn to like get into the business but his technical first feature film which was a student film uh the script or something got nominated for an oscar so his yeah. student film literally got nominated for an Oscar. It's not too far out of the realm with George Lucas, whose second film was nominated for Best Picture. It's wild. You know, it's, like I said earlier, it's like kind of astounding that this man who has had such an influence on everything in Hollywood has never won an Oscar. And, and and yet he's such a, he's such a, an, um, an influence. He's such a, a instrumental part in like what would later be I mean, like you, you were saying about Star Wars influencing... Um... Well, it's just like a farce with the Oscars. You know, Orson Welles only won one Oscar, and it was for writing Citizen Kane, which, you know, Mank leads you to believe, uh, maybe, maybe he didn't have so much to do with it. Um, and Stanley Kubrick only winning one Oscar for special effects for 2001 A Space Odyssey, where I'm sure he did a lot, but, like, you're not giving him a director award? Like, this is Stanley fucking Kubrick, you know? But... In regards to THX and American Graffiti, like you said, they're two very different movies, but the attention to detail is just also exquisite. Like, let's, 
I know we talked about it in each movie. You said they're different, it's similar. What makes them so similar is the attention to detail. Oh yeah. Uh, every little knob like tells a story in each of the movies. Each car tells a story. Like Kurt's car is pretty badass and I'm not a car person, but like that's a pretty cool car with no real uh, engine hood. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess it was like a glass engine hood, but you know, there's so much detail in all of his work and for such a small budget he knew how to operate under a small budget we'll talk about this with a new hope but that was another small budget that he was yeah. able to just get the most out of he, like uh, yeah it's like like i was saying he's got a grand imagination and to to go off of what you're saying it's like he knows because you know when someone's got a big idea and they don't have the budget to make it work when you watch in any big movie with today with giant cgi and you're like okay there's clearly big ideas here but it looks sloppy when you're watching the screen you're like this doesn't work the budget was not used properly you know what i mean and we've become conditioned to think that that's normal yeah. but back in the day it's like you look at people like george and the special effects weren't what they were and you're like okay i have a tiny budget how can i tell this story for him to put the amount of effort he did in just the chase sequence in thx just as much as he took this budget in american graffiti and he's like all right let me just take trinkets here and there and just show the cars the clothes the diner and all of a sudden it becomes a whole world he built he's great at world building yeah now let's put on like our critic hats here for a little bit like and talk about each movie individually thx 1138 yes the production design is unbelievable and it's like revolutionary what george was able to do but let's be real like it's not the greatest movie of all time here at points i found myself kind of like a little out of it i was just like okay cool like we can move on a little bit here you know i don't you, know you don't have to climb up the ladder you know are they really going to stop chasing him because they made it five percent over budget like there's some things in the movie where you're just like uh, I, don't, I don't know I mean, I, it's not that I entirely disagree. I think there's times where it, it seems a little sloppy or it seems a little um, bloated, but like I had never seen THX before. So maybe oh, right. I'm That's... Um, like, just for, just for audience perspective, maybe it's a little bit of a drinking the Kool-Aid, but I, I was enamored. Like I loved how weird it was. I loved how slow it was, how very, like I said, how anti-Hollywood it was. Um, it is certainly not a normal movie by any means it's certainly like you had alluded to earlier in the episode it's not like something you would um i, I don't remember exactly what you said but it's, it's not like your your typical kind of movie like you're not like you'd have to be a it's real film your average bear you'd yeah. have to be a, a film person to like you like love the aspects of it and i think that's what so it put was. it on you have to be a film person because i don't think an average person is going to watch this and walk away going no oh, way this is great no way they're it's gonna definitely walk away not... going what the fuck are you making me watch right now and then in, in turn, it's like, I, 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 so I loved it. And I, I see where it's flawed and I see where it's bloated and I see where people would hate it. And I guess that's what I love about it. But in, I, in turn, you look at American Graffiti, which like just from on paper, it's just like, you're looking at it. It's probably, it's arguably George's most well-made movie now, like just, but what, from what I'm, what I mean by that is that like Star Wars is a, is an achievement that like most filmmakers probably won't reach because of what it did for its time and how it influenced sci-fi and storytelling etc but american graffiti is like everything from the way it's shot the, the production design the storytelling dynamics the way they the split script, up the characters just yeah oh again man. i don't mean to harp on it but the script for american graffiti is probably the best script that george lucas has ever really Absolutely. directed off of 
I mean, it's not the biggest ideas he's ever worked off of, but it is definitely the most solid script because each character has a motivation, has a uh, has an arc. Everything just kind of meshes together with that one. I think it's his most cohesive work. That's what I was alluding to. It's really it's it's clean, like from beginning to finish. Like it's certainly and that unlike THX, I feel like you could show someone and they'll enjoy it. Yeah, you can show that you can show that to almost anyone, and they can at least you know appreciate it. They can. Well, but uh, what's fascinating to me about American Graffiti, forgetting the airplane for a minute, but just how much society has changed. That to me was like my biggest takeaway from that movie because I was watching this movie going, "Where are these kids' parents? Like, <laughs> what's going on? These are high school yeah. kids, and like, Kurt is just driving around with it. They don't specify how old Carol is, but it's alluded to that she's like what 15 years like 13 old 13 or something 13, like that. 15 yeah. years old and she's just driving in this car with this weird man like what's his face uh richard dreyfus's character is just cutting the brakes on a cop car and like walks away with the punity like there's some stuff in here where you're like 2021 it's, this isn't gonna fly <laughs> no and i think that's what makes it work about taking place in the 50s like i like oh, absolutely even, that's even what i'm down saying to, even down to um, harrison's uh hair haircut not working for for the movie because it's like it needs like george was so adamant like this needs to represent the 50s it needs the soundtrack it needs the environment and i think that comes down to the characters decisions and like here are these young guys like trying to get laid and like here's this guy who picks up a girl in his car and then all of a sudden it's like well how old is this girl really and so it's kind of like these very taboo subjects even nowadays are like well especially in, nowadays like right. you think any parent would let any of this fly right now absolutely right. not and that's you would get a me, phone call because you all everyone has a tracker on their fucking cell phone you'll get a phone call from your parent why the fuck are you driving down this road at 200 miles an hour you right know? and that's what makes them the, that's what makes american graffiti special is because it's so it's almost like frozen in its time period it, it's that's just, what i love about it yeah. because it is a beautiful time capsule of not just uh that era but it shows just how different society was but i think that's what i love ultimately and just to recap is that i love the contrast between the two time periods and even though thx is a fictional a completely fictional almost in a philip k dick kind of way um a time period where it's like it's it's indistinguishable it's just you know it's the future and you know it's very um is dark and, and strange and very uh, uniform in the way that, like we were saying, that alludes to um, uh, a lot of tropes about dictatorship or like you were saying about Soviet films and how that alludes to where we're going as a society and how it could arguably seen as even more prominent oh, yeah. now. I mean, that's what's so interesting about THX. I don't mean to go back, but like the movie kind of uses Soviet cinema techniques to, in a way, like show how bad soviet like the soviet union is you know mm -hmm. it's like interesting how he uses their own technology or their own film editing style against them right uh and and i think that the contrast between the two films i think is again that's the whole i mean that's what swept me and i think it honestly made for a great double feature even though i didn't intend on watching this close together as i did yeah i know right it's very uh, it's a very strange double feature yeah, but it's Good for him. Yeah, All good right. for him. So. so I think that concludes our discussion about George Lucas and his first two movies. So Josh, tell me, do you have a pick of the week? Um, yeah, I couldn't really think of anything that could... Really? <laughs> that I thought could of really, something uh, immediately. I couldn't think of anything. I'm going to go with just a, a, a reach here, but I uh, I went with the Wachowski's uh, Cloud Atlas from 2012. 
It's a very ambitious movie. Does not have a big well. It's got a cult, small cult following, but I guess that what got me is again like the capturing the time periods. That movie uh, spans six different storylines over six different periods of time. One is way in the past. One is way in the future. Um, Wachowskis have made a small name for themselves, but enough of a cult name. Um, again, I, I guess I'm more going not auteur, but like I'm, that's the direction I'm going in. More uh, directors with a establishment with a piece that that's ambitious. Uh, because both of these movies, American Graffiti and THX, were ambitious. So that's part of what came to mind. I'm not even going to dive into Cloud Atlas. I've read the book. I've seen the film. So You speak the true, true. Um, <laughs> I've actually never seen Cloud Atlas. It's ambitious. Uh, <laughs> that's what I've heard. Uh, immediately what popped into my mind was Back to the Future Part 2. I feel like it is the perfect blend of these two movies because <clears throat> is it the best that's Back true. to the Future movie? Absolutely not. But that's a great answer. It has the dystopian future that THX has. It has the car situation of American graffiti. Plus, you get to go to the 1950s for a little bit. Wow. Uh, so that's what popped into my mind immediately. That's a great answer. Wow. I'm sorry. I don't mean just to, you know. Also, the second one, because I, if I, I can't remember, but I think I already recommended the first one in a different podcast. But the first one also doesn't have the dystopian future that is required from THX. Just, that's good but i think i think back to the future 2 is underrated but i mean is it like i mean both parts two and three suffer compared to the first one so well, that's what i mean like is it the best back to the future movie absolutely not it's probably like better than three but it's, it's very strange definitely not better than one yeah I, two and three it's like arguable i don't know i feel like three is more fun but of course two is actually a very it's not a very fun it's not very fun. A lot of that movie's bleak and very strange well, and very that's dark. And going with it too, because you have to have the bleakness of THX and the car situation of the American fun, Graffiti. Then, I like yeah. that. That's good. So I think that concludes this episode of Whose Filmography Is It Anyway? As always, you can follow me on Instagram and letterbox at Mr. Filmart. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at Whose Filmography. Josh, where can the people find you? You can find me on uh, Letterboxd under Beesh, B-E-E-S-H, exactly as it sounds, as always. Um, but, uh, you know, you can also follow the show on Instagram, like Steven said, who is filmography. Just give us a damn follow, you know, that's all. <laughs> that's the <laughs> we're not, spirit. We're not asking for much, folks. Uh, so we will see you next week when we get on our Nubian yacht and fly from Naboo to Curasant away from the Trade Federation, because they're coming. They're Misa. coming. Misa very horny. <laughs> you send big doo-doo this time. <laughs> All right, we'll see you okay. next time. Adios, folks.